Hey there, I'm Evan DeWald and I'm joined by Tara Lindsley and this is Unpacked. We're unpacking life as messy people. So here, we do the things that we do the best. We tell stories and we share life with each other. Sometimes life gets big and messy and full of failure and vulnerable moments, but we believe that sharing those things together helps us all to grow. So have a listen. Make sure to like and subscribe. This week on Unpacked, we're chatting with Kevin Castanero, and this is going to be fun. Yeah, it was so good interviewing him. We were really excited and looking forward to this. He's a former executive with Mex. He's a world traveler. He leads a ministry in Haiti around aquaculture, and he's also just a really good friend. Yeah, I'm, I am uh, really excited because Kevin is uh, obviously a good friend, but he's also a member of the LGBTQ community, and he has taught me so much about that community, but also just what life is like for, for him and what it's been like for him. So, And today we get to hear a bunch of that story. Yeah, and he shares some of um, really painful moments in his life that actually brought him to faith. And he's very open and vulnerable as he shares that with us. So we're really lucky we got the chance to do that. Yeah, and like this is a guy who has actually influenced both of us in significant ways. And mm-hmm. so in a lot of ways, we're talking to our really, really, really good friend. Mm-hmm. But also he has so much to offer the world. So I hope people have a listen and enjoy. Oh, man. How are you doing out there? Good. It was beautiful, yeah? but now it's pouring rain. Oh, it, mm. it's uh, dark, mm-hmm. like super dark here. Just gray and... It was that kind of weekend, and it looks like it's that kind of Tuesday, too. So, You know what's funny, though, is that I can't hear myself. So I'm listening to you guys, and I'm talking, but I don't really hear what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 So you might have to throw your hands in the air and go, like. Like we just don't <laughs> care? Throw our hands in the air like we just don't care? <laughs> so this is our goal for today, is, like, when Tara and I were talking about it, we, we think there's probably multiple conversations to have with you. The big goal for today is I'd, I'd really like to just get your story. And, and maybe even like as time, as the story goes on, our story together. You know, when I think about the years of pastoral experience, life that I've had, people I've worked with, people that I have cared for through hard things. And, and I think about the people who have become good friends. It's interesting because both of you on this call today, I actually got to know both of you through hard things during a hard time. And what well, was interesting, like Tara wasn't supposed to be a hard time. It was supposed to be no. <laughs> the most exciting, happy time of her life. You know, she's getting married and like, right. And it's like, and then, you know, a few deaths and a flood, a, a few deaths and a flood later, it was kind of like, wow, she was quite the mess, you know? Like, <laughs> and I, I consider this is what's kind of fun about today's podcast is that I'm talking to two of my closest friends. And, and so that, uh, has been really fun and probably two people that have shaped me and the way that I see the world and the way that I see the church and all of those kind of things on top of that. So anyways, it's kind of a fun one. And vice versa. 
Yeah. Vice versa for sure. Also two people that didn't grow up going to church, which is really interesting (laughs) or you did in a different way, but like just, yeah, our history of it is different. That is so true. I didn't, I didn't even think of that either. And it's like, and I, I actually would say that, that that's part of what makes watching both of you, the two of you grow in your faith is that's been so exciting is that in so many ways, and you've heard me preach about this before in so many ways, there are certain parts of baggage, like religious baggage that you don't carry with you. And, and over the last, you know, you know, decade, I guess we'll say a decade, so many conversations where I'm saying, well, this is kind of how the church works. And as I'm explaining it to you, I'm starting to realize these aren't the best ways that the church works. (laughs) They are how it works, but not super proud of this part of our history, right? (laughs) But mostly we're interviewing Kevin. And and there's something interesting about when I talk about not growing up in the church and, and finding my faith so late in my life is that people always tell me it always sounds so fresh and innocent and yeah. And, and we don't think of it that way. We just, I just think of it being incompetent and just like this, I'm in grade two basically. And I just have right. so much growing up to do. Well, just to tag on to that, what's so interesting about that is for both of you, the wisdom that you have brought without the, like, I don't see it as naive at all, because one of the interesting things is that your, your perspective on who God is, what the heart of God is about, it's actually one of the most pure forms. As I think about that, when I talk to both of you about this, it's not naive. I, I think for, for old school church people like myself, to be honest with you, Sometimes I have to ask myself, is this the heart of God? Or is this like my tradition screaming at me? Like, which one is it? On a lot of occasions, which I was just trying to refer to, the two of you have helped me to go, oh, wait a sec. That is my tradition playing out. That is not what I want these two to hear about the heart of God. I want them to know this. And yeah, maybe you might need to hear that. It's like, no, when I hear this topic, my tradition is like screaming at me so that you can understand me. I don't really want you to pick it up in so many ways, right? In Tara's cases, I've explained so much of how the church works so that she can communicate well to it because that's her job Mm -hmm. with us. And in Kevin's case, I think a lot of it for us, like our trips to Israel, were a big part of that. This This is the tradition and this is the truth. Anyway, so tell us a little bit about yourself uh, as we kind of get started. Just give us a quick snapshot of you, who you are, where have you worked? I, um, I'm born and raised in Montreal in Quebec. My parents um, were both Portuguese and came over from Aruba in the early 50s. My oldest sister, Gail, was actually born in Aruba. So when my parents came over, my mom was already pregnant with my sister, Lynn. I have four older sisters. So I'm like the first son. And then I've got two younger brothers. But <laughs> you can only imagine the pressure that came with being the first son. You know, growing up in, in uh, an Italian neighborhood in St. Leonard, summertime would come and we'd get so dark. Like all of us would be so dark. And I used to get teased hmm. and, and teased about actually people telling me I was gay. I hadn't even figured out my own sexuality and people were already labeling me as, as a, actually as a faggot. It was, hmm. it was super hard for me. 
like school for me was, was probably the hardest part of, you know, before I became an adult in trying to be myself and being forced into this, this box that people created for me. And the result of that was that I did so poorly in school. You know, my grades were suffering. And, and back then we didn't talk to anybody. I didn't talk to my family about it. I uh, didn't talk to my friends about it. It was just kind of there hanging over my head. So by the time I was ready to finish high school, all I wanted to do was work. So, you know, my birth order being the number five in the family and the first son, there were all these expectations about what I was going to do with the rest of my education. Mm. So you can imagine how crushed my dad was when I said I wasn't going back to school. I was done. I just, I wanted to work. I wasn't a lazy kid. I just yeah. didn't want to be in school anymore. And, and I just wanted to get out into the workforce. And all he wanted from me was, was an awesome life that, that he didn't have, the education that he didn't have a chance to, to have. So the early years of, of, you know, the late years of my teens were, were really tough. I, had, I guess I had a lot to prove to myself, let alone prove to my family that, no, I wasn't going to go to school, but that I was going to actually make something of myself and, and I was going to be successful. And not that any of that was on my radar screen, but what was pretty clear was that I didn't want to continue my education. So, yeah, 1976, I, I graduated from high school, but I didn't get my high school leading certificate because I didn't have all the credits needed to finish high school. Okay, interesting. Hey, wait a sec. What, what did your dad do for a living and your mom? My mom was a homemaker. There were seven of us, right? So she was a homemaker. <laughs> and my dad was a refinery operator in the east end of, of Quebec at the refineries in, in eastern Montreal. Okay. Why did they come to Montreal? To be honest with you, I, I think the choice was either to go to the States or to come to, to Canada. And they decided Canada. And as far as job opportunities for, for dad at the time, it was the refineries in, in Quebec, right? They were close by. Mm -hmm. Uh, he came down, I guess, about six months before to get us uh, an apartment to live in. Well, me, I wasn't born yet, but to get my, my mom and, and my two sisters a, a place to live. My father always said my mom was a bad goaltender because she ended up having seven kids. But <laughs> I think his plan all along was, was to have a big family. So, but, and they were Catholic too, right? Oh, yeah. They were Catholic, yeah. all right. Yeah. yeah. So you can imagine... We had this, this station wagon and we had to go to church on Sunday. My mom always said, if you don't have an hour for the Lord, well, then you're not going to leave the house. So oh. <laughs> all, all nine of us would pile into the station wagon. And then you can only imagine we'd pull up in front of church and people were watching us. This like circus is coming out of this vehicle and they keep wondering how many more kids are stuffed into this to the station wagon. Yeah, we'd go to church every Sunday. Mom was uh, was pretty adamant about us going to church on Sunday. But your dad didn't go that much, did he? No, my dad did for sure. But if he was shift worker, right? So dad, if he was working or he had to be sleeping because he just came off a shift, then mom would very nervously drive us all to church. <laughs> she didn't like to drive, but that was the only reason that she would was to make sure that we all got to church on Sunday. So 1976, you graduate. So that was the year I was born. So, okay. Okay. I'm okay. I'm totally <laughs> <laughs> that, that was not the year I was born, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. You graduate, you don't want to go to university or, or that kind of stuff. You start working, you start working in a, or what do you start doing? Yeah. Yeah. Start working. It was the year of the Olympics, right? 1976. So downtown was hustling and bustling. There was a brand new shopping center there. And I got job, a job in a, in a denim store, like a jean store. And 
You know, I learned to speak French, read and write and speak French when I was in school. But growing up in an Anglo household, I didn't really get to practice it. So by the time I finished high school, very little French really stuck with me. And now I'm working downtown and I'm serving the public and I, my French had to be pretty good. I remember <laughs> silly things like leaning on a rack of corduroys and some guy would come in and say in French, Est-ce que vous avez des cordes de bois? Do you have any corduroys in French? And me not knowing what it was, I would say no. But of course, I'm leaning on a rack full of. <laughs> I so you're a good pretty... salesman then. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Once I got over being shy about not speaking French, which actually didn't take very long, I was pretty determined that I was going to speak the language and I was going to try and not have an English accent when I when I did speak it. Yeah. And your boss is wondering why. Your boss is wondering the whole time why corduroy sales are down. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and it's the first rack in the store too it's like yeah oh, kevin must have been working that day <laughs> can i ask you a serious question just when you said you didn't want to have an english accent was some of that like you just didn't want to be judged for not having that or teased or were your coworkers pick up on that like what was that about yeah it was it was basically I wanted to master the French language. You know, it's so funny because growing up as a kid, my obviously my parents would would report cards very closely when they, you know, every term that they came uh, home for them to sign. And the thing that was most important for my dad was all of our marks in French, how we were doing in French. And he always said, you know, he moved as an immigrant to Quebec. Quebec is a French language province and we are going to learn language. And so I guess that just kind of stuck with me. And to make it easier in my career, it was a great thing to have a second language. I just wanted to be really good at it. Mm -hmm. So that was my motivation is make sure that I could speak it properly. Read and write actually is pretty good in school, but uh, just practicing speaking it was, was really difficult not growing up in a francophone environment at home. So tell us a little bit about, more about your story kind of leading up to you know when we met you. Yeah, well, working in... in you know, my, my father would say, you're never going to have any security working in a clothing store as a salesperson. And so to be honest with you, I, I, I wasn't looking to, to climb a corporate ladder in the fashion industry. It just kind of presented itself to me. I went from a salesperson to assistant manager, and then they gave me keys to manage the store. And then after working for a smaller company, only with a couple of stores, I moved on to a, you know, a bigger chain of stores. And, and oddly enough, it was always in, the, in women's fashion. I never worked in the men's fashion world. I always worked for women's clothing stores. Because you sucked at selling corduroys. <laughs> <laughs> Not women's corduroys. I was pretty good at that. And then in 1991, I uh, was offered the opportunity to, to go and work for a big international company called Metz. Metz is a, a Dutch brand, head office based in Amsterdam. I got the job there. I was uh, hired as a manager for the women's division and... Got to travel the world, got to see Amsterdam, became like a second home to me. I was there six times a year, spending two weeks at a time, fell in love with Amsterdam and eventually worked my way up within Max, took over the menswear division and then they gave me kids and I became a director for Max, the brand for all of our product lines. And then just before Liz Claiborne purchased the company in 2005, my boss promoted me to the first vice president of Max Canada. So that was pretty cool. Two years later, they offered me a position to move to Amsterdam and work at headquarters there to actually run our division of retail across 35 countries all over the world. 
So I, I went from being this really big fish in a small pond to Europe, where I became this like tiny little fish in this massive, massive ocean. The, br- the brand was really suffering at the time too. So the environment was, could be really toxic at times, but I tried to stay focused and do the best job that I could and decided in 2009 when my contract was up that it was time for me to just leave this industry. Along that way, you had some other little crises of life and discoveries and all those kinds of things. And so what we, what we haven't said yet is that you are a, a gay man who has a story around that of kind of discovering some of that stuff. So can you tell us a little bit about like, what was that like for you and your story? And when did you start to, to sense that, oh, something is different than my friends or my brothers or my, like, how did that play out for you? And when did that happen? Yeah. To, to be honest with you, being teased in school and, and bullied in school uh, didn't help to define who I was. And when I finally moved out and, and got a small apartment downtown, uh, I was 19. It was in 1977. It was my first apartment. I think I just started to discover who I was. But to be honest with you, it probably took me 12 years before I actually admitted that I was gay and, and came out even to my family. So from 18 until I was about 30, uh, it was just something that I kept pretty quiet. I didn't yeah. talk a lot about it at home. I'd go home, visit you know, family. And of course, aunts and uncles would always wonder how come I wasn't, you know, didn't have a girlfriend or didn't bring anybody home. At some point, I did have to kind of face the music and, and to come to terms with it. And so by the time I turned 30, I guess 30, 32, came out to my family. Of course, your fear is always of one of rejection, right? Are they going to reject me? Mm-hmm. I, I had nieces and nephews. And what's your relationship going to be like with them who are, who are even younger than, um, than my, my siblings, my brothers and sisters? But everybody was amazing in my family. Everybody mm-hmm. treated me with respect and told me that it didn't make a difference and that they just, they loved me no matter what. They were proud of me. And I always came home to this really safe environment, even though school was really toxic at the time too. I did a Bible study a few years ago. And one of the questions was, where do you think God was in your life, like in your past life? And I think for me, for sure, God was there because he was way ahead of me at home, creating an environment where I felt loved and safe, even though I came from a really tough day at school. You know, my siblings never teased me. My parents always loved me. I, I could have come home to a really different environment. And, and I think God was there way before me, just making sure that, that I was safe and happy in, in an awesome home. That, that's an incredible thing to, to realize too, right? Is that it's like, I had this safe place, even though you weren't fully living out being yourself in that safe place. Is that, is that fair to say that for those first many years? Yeah, absolutely. And let's face it, I, I didn't even know who I was at that time. That was the hardest part. You're being pegged into this, into a hole, basically, and being told who you are before you even had a chance to discover yourself. Yeah, that, that was the biggest struggle, I think, for me, is that I hadn't even figured out my sexuality at the time. Yeah, I had girlfriends and, you know, becoming an adult and, and leaving school just made me realize that, that I was just covering something up. I didn't know what it was, but I was covering it up. And uh, to be really brutally honest, my, my first encounter with with a with a guy was horrible and it left me feeling terrible and for years I just said okay so I'm not gay and and that was that was a huge part of my story is trying to figure that out such a struggle right to all of that 
to the identity, the identity factor of it and the, just all of it. Yeah. And, and let's face it, you know, being brought up Catholic and, and being reminded that, you know, gay people are all going to go to hell is always at the back of your mind, church or no church. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for me, church ended when I moved out and I was living downtown and I wasn't looking for, wasn't looking for a church and wasn't looking for God. Why would you pursue a God you've been taught hates you? Yeah, exactly. Like that just sets you up for more pain and more suffering. And it was just easier to just walk away from it. I mean, I went to church, you know, Christmas and Easter and stuff with my family when I'd go back home for visits, but it it wasn't a part of my life. Did you have a sense of shame for some of those years when you were struggling with your sexuality? Was there a sense of shame maybe put on by the church or the kids growing up? Not being put on by the church because I, you know, I was too young. I think at the time when I finally figured out my, my identity, I wasn't part of the church anymore, but the back of my mind, it was always there for sure. And and I was really involved in church. I used to play my guitar in our choir. We used to go to seniors homes and hospitals on Sundays after church to sing and play our guitar and sing hymns. And it, it was a big part of my life, but not knowing who I was and just struggling with with school, it was, it was so much easier to shut it all down and, and walk away from it. I think the shame, the shame part came later, you know, when I was older enough and, and realizing who I was and just didn't want anybody to know. On the podcast, we've talked about the emotion of shame. It was one of the podcast entries. One of the things that we were learning was that like all of our emotions give us some kind of information and the emotion of shame tells us essentially that something is attacking or something is attacking our identity. So shame is this really hard thing. And unfortunately, the byproduct of feeling like your your identity is in jeopardy is that you withdraw, pull back and you pull away. And of course, that makes it worse. As I watch and I listen to people's stories, you see it so often. Well, I pulled back from the church. I pulled away from this, that, or the other. I pulled away from my family. I pulled away from whatever, over whatever topic it is. It's made me even as a pastor ask kind of different questions. Anyway, so interesting. Okay, so so you roll up to, you know, somewhere 2009. Is that what you said? And uh, you end up, so, so world traveler. Grown up, grew up in Montreal, travels all over the world, find yourself in Amsterdam, working, running this major clothing company in a, in a pretty significant way. And then you decide you give it all up and you move to another, you know, hub of cultural activity in Strathmore, Alberta, right? Like <laughs> That seems like, that definitely seems like the next step on the ladder towards success. (laughs) Uh, Actually, I was in in Florida in 2008, visiting some friends, and I met this guy. His name was Claude Gauvin, and he was actually from Quebec, French-Canadian guy, building houses in Strathmore, Alberta. And the two of us hit it off. We spent a couple of weeks together. It was amazing. I went back to Amsterdam. He went back to Strathmore. I'd never been to Alberta before that, before knowing Claude. And a couple of weeks after, upon my return, Claude 
sent me a text and just said, I, I can't function. I kind of, I need to see you and see what, what's going on here with this, this new relationship we just started. So he came to visit me in Amsterdam. Uh, we had a great time. We went to Belgium. I got to show him, you know, the, some beautiful places. And it was, it was awesome for him. And it was great for me because I could feel something was growing in this relationship. Of course, not knowing where it was going to go. Uh, my plan was to go back to Montreal after I finished my career at Mex in, in Amsterdam after my contract was over. And now, of course, there's this element of, you know, Claude in my life and trying to figure out what, am I, what are my next steps going to be? Well, by the time the end of 2008 rolled around, uh, there was a lot going on at Mex and they had actually let the CEO go, who was the guy who actually hired me. I had some big decisions to make. So long story short, I said, yes, I would take the position but that I'd be leaving six months later to go back to Canada. And at that point, Claude and I started talking about how do we build this life together? Like, how are we going to make this work in Strathmore? Of course, I still don't know what Strathmore is yet. <laughs> <laughs> and so I do move to Strathmore. And I'll never forget, I went to have my driver's license, my Dutch driver's license converted to a Alberta driver's license. And the clerk at the counter looked at me and she's like, what are you doing here? You are in the wrong place. <laughs> what would possess you to leave Amsterdam and to move to Strathmore, Alberta? Um, her name was Sue and she actually knew Claude really well. And two seconds later, Claude walked through the door and then she kind of understood what, what I was doing there. So yeah. You kind of you kind of wonder what's what do I do for an encore living in Strathmore after my pretty awesome career at Max. So I I took a, like six months and I just relaxed and took it easy and tried to figure out what next steps were for me. I didn't want to really work anymore, and I was lucky because at the age of forty nine I was able to retire, and it was more out of boredom that I started thinking about okay what am I going to do now. And then realizing I didn't have to top my career at Mex, I, I took a staging and design course and started a really small uh, staging company. Just to stop. So I'm planning to retire at 49 too. So I, I totally understand. I, my career has, <laughs> has <laughs> created a scenario for me that's quite good. And it's time to retire. I think it's, it's two years. I'm two, two years out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that ship has sailed. Also, question. <laughs> When you got to Strathmore, what was your impression? Like, what did you do for those six months? Did you explore? Like, <laughs> Strathmore. So, fifteen minutes later, well, we we started going to rodeos because Claude loved to go to rodeos. Two of his good friends lived out in Hannah, and we went out there for a rodeo. And then I realized that you know I'm a vegetarian, and well, I'm a pescatarian, so I don't eat meat. I do eat fish. And I go to rodeo and Claude would come back with a big burger and fries and a piece of pie for me or a bag of chips. Alberta in general is not really mm -hmm. vegetarian friendly. Like tell us in what, what's in, what ends up happening? Like you're, you've, you've planned your, your dream life uh, together in Strathmore, which obviously probably takes some readjusting. And you started staging. That's where you were at. Yeah, you start staging some houses and yeah. And actually moved out, moved around quite a bit too, because Claude was living in Strathmore. He had built a house there. And then we decided that we were going to build a house in Chestermere. Moved into our house in Chestermere in a, a new development called Kinneyburg. And when we moved in there, there were like 10 houses on our street. Like Kinneyburg, like consisted of 10 houses. 
there's probably like, I don't know, five, 600 houses there now, if not more. Yeah, it's a lot. I don't know. I actually don't have a good even guess, but a lot. So moved into our house in January. And then in February, a good friend of Claude's passed away. Uh, his name was Keith Schneider. I had met Keith and, and his wife, Gwen, at Claude's house a couple of times, actually, the, the year before. And they were on a cruise and Keith ended up passing away. Yeah, he had cancer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know Claude used to write to me about, cause Keith was sick for a while. And when I was living in Amsterdam, Claude would send me texts about the ups and downs of, of Keith's health and how he was doing. But at that point he was actually doing pretty good well enough for them to actually go away on a cruise. So in February uh, we found out that, that Keith had passed away, which was devastating for Claude. Mm-hmm. And so Claude and I went to the funeral and that's actually where I met you. Claude and I are sitting there during the service and we were just in awe of the amazing job that you did in not just the service, but in capturing Keith's life for someone who hardly knew him, me mainly, like, of course, Claude knew him better than I did, but I just sat there and I, I felt like you, you taught me so much about who Keith was. During the service, Claude and I looked at each other and kind of made a pact saying, if anything ever happens to either of us, Evan's the guy that needs to do our funeral. No, it's so interesting because this, this is like where my part of the story kind of comes in. And, and part of the reason why I was able to do that, like, to be honest with you, like Keith's funeral goes down as one of the most difficult things I've had to do as a pastor. And mostly because I had, I had had the opportunity. I'd known Keith for quite a few years. He had been attending our church. His kids, were, his daughters were in our youth group. And, we would go to Tim's and we would talk as he was battling cancer and some significant things happened uh, in my, my life. As I listened to this guy who, who was facing death, talk about what he was looking forward to. And there was just such this horrible tension, right? Cause then this is what it's like to walk with somebody who's, who is ill is that there's a tension between the grief of not being present for your family, which was so heavy for him. But also, he was really coming to his place in his life where, his, where God was saying such incredible things to him and comforting him and bringing him along. Like as a pastor, and I hate to say it like this, but it was, it was one of the greatest privileges of my life to walk with him through those last few years. So that day when I had to wake up, and I remember still, when I woke up to go to do his funeral, I was so broken. So, so sad. And I had just left hope. So I was no longer the pastor at hope. It was weird. And uh, he was an incredible man who, who changed how I pastor, honestly. Probably still does change the way I pastor. Yeah, so I was devastated that day along with you and, and Claude. And then we went and had uh, egg salad sandwiches with you guys. So, you know, the funeral food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. It's like... <laughs> That was the day I met you. Yeah. Cause, cause <laughs> this was so funny. I got to tell this part of the story. So Chris and I just finished working at the church. We were like three weeks out of working at, at hope. There's always a weird tension when you're pastoring a church for so long. And then you, you leave, you, you, there's weird dynamics as you figure those, how you're going to live life differently when you're not their pastor anymore and all that kind of stuff. I remember very clearly that we, and, and sometimes their feelings were a little bit hurt too, you know, that we had chosen to make a shift to go to a different place and some of those things. And that had a lot to do with where we thought God was leading us. But I remember Kristen and I got our food, you know, our funeral food. 
and and we turn around and the rec center uh, is full the community center of tables and this probably wasn't true but it felt like this that we turned around and looked and we just went there's nowhere for us to sit no one's inviting us to sit with them and we didn't know what to do it was it was one of the most out of just strange feelings for us ever and you guys i think it was Claude said come sit with us there's look there's two chairs right here and and i remember feeling so relieved and then only to discover that we were sitting at the gate table you know and then that was a different thing you know <laughs> i'm done <laughs> <laughs> totally kidding but but that was the day that that uh like our first meal together kevin was egg salad sandwiches you know funeral food <laughs> so we we meet that day and then you take it from here what what did that look like for you and it's so funny because i we had no idea what was going on in your story with everything leaving hope and and so on we were just yeah there to to support gwen and to support claude and and then we didn't see each other at all. And then in September, the end of September, Claude needed some help with the uh, house that he was building out in Pritis. I didn't typically go to work with Claude, um, but his office manager was going to work with him that day and he needed some help to do some, punch out the, some of the cement in the foundation of the house. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll, I, I'm a set of hands. I'll come and give you a hand. And that day, um, Claude had an accident with the bobcat while we're there and just kind of held Claude's hand. And I knew that somehow there's no way he was getting out of this alive. I think it was just, it was too much damage done. And so Mm. Claude died that day. And Mm. and I'll never forget because that morning as we were driving out to Pritis, I said, you know, today is five years that my mom is gone. So Claude actually died on the same day that my mom did five years later. The most difficult time in my life, for sure. Yeah. Um, Claude used to go out to Pritis all the time to that job site by himself. And I think in hindsight, I thank God that I was actually there because I would have been at home waiting and waiting and he wouldn't have shown up and I would have had no idea where he was or what was going on. So as tough as it was to be there, I'm, I'm happy that I was there and that he wasn't by himself either. So a couple of days later, we had to go and make funeral arrangements. And of course, I remembered our promise to each other that we had to get you to do the funeral. And you were a pretty busy guy back then, because I remember the funeral director said, well, we're going to have to hear, he's going to have to juggle a few things around, but he can do the funeral. And I think it was three days later. What, what I loved was your process in meeting with all of us. You met with myself and Wes and Andre and Claude's brother. You knew Claude, but you wanted to know more about Claude and what our relationship was with him. And I felt so comforted by you in just that conversation alone in sitting in Claude's office. And it's funny because we're sitting in the boardroom and you just took control of, of you know, that hour and a half that we sat and talked and, and we planned Claude's funeral. I guess about a month later, I got a phone call from Gwen. She left a message on my phone just saying that she was thinking about me and just wanted to know if I wanted to get together and have a coffee. I, we had a second funeral for Claude in Quebec for his mom and for his family there. So I was busy with that until the end of October. 
she just reached out again and said, I'd really like for us to grab that coffee. And I can imagine it's going to be a, it's a tough time for me. So I can only imagine that it's going to be a tough time, your first Christmas alone without quote. And so my family actually came to Chesimer and we spent Christmas at the house. I didn't want to go back East. I just kind of wanted to stay put. And we had a really nice Christmas and, and I started to wonder where, Evan was on Christmas Eve that there's got to be a church somewhere in Chester. So I, you know, a few days before I did some research and found out that they were meeting in, in a school and that there was a Christmas Eve mass that was planned. And we went that night. I will never forget walking through the door. Um, it was Maddie. I'm pretty sure it was Matt took my hand in both his hand and said, welcome to Lake Ridge. We're so happy that you're here. I was like, what? Here's a, a room full of people, a school full of people that don't know me. And the first thing I hear is a welcome telling me that you're happy that I'm here. I felt like I was home. We sat down. It was a beautiful service. I don't know if you remember, but there were tables of tea lights that you had everybody come up and, and light a candle. And it was amazing. At, at the end of the service, you found your way through the crowd to come and see me and see how I was doing. And you actually told me that you were going to get auto in January. Yeah, your, that's your right. Son. That's why I was so busy that fall. <laughs> that's right. So anyway, after, after Christmas Eve mass, um, we went to Florida and I vowed that when I got back from Florida, I was going to have my coffee with Gwen and that I was going to start going to Lake Ridge. And you told me that. You sent me an email or something and said, I'm planning to come. I think you may have asked even, would it be okay if I came? There was an uncertainty for you that you were always like, it's going to be okay. Like, can I come? I'll backtrack a little bit. Cause I like Claude was a very well-known person. And when he passed away, it was on Facebook and you know, all those kinds of things. And I remember I was in my hockey draft and Kristen came into the kitchen and said, Claude has passed away. And Kristen said, they're going to be phoning it. And she just knew. Really? She, she, she just knew. Yeah. But at this time, we were not in Chestermere yet. I remember, like, not the first time. After the Christmas Eve, the first actual service that you came to, I remember you walked in. I didn't know which Sunday you were planning to come. You walked in, and I went straight over to you and said, I need you to know that I'm about to preach a sermon. <laughs> yeah, you're nodding your head like, yeah. Because oh. you know, I didn't want to freak you out to think that I only knew one sermon because, <laughs> and this was a God thing. I was preaching on the Good Samaritan story. And I, I don't remember, sir, I was just telling Tara this morning, I don't remember sermons I've preached, but I do remember this one. And the reason why I remember it so significantly was in Claude's, the homily I did at Claude's funeral. I told the story of the Good Samaritan and that Claude was like a Good Samaritan who loved his neighbors. I do remember that. And then you showed up the first Sunday, you showed up. I'm preaching on the same story. And I was concerned that it would be hard, really hard for you actually is, is why I remember telling you that. And so it begins kind of this strange relationship we had. Like you and I, Gwen deserves a great deal of credit for coming alongside of you and walking with you to come to church, to talk about the stories, to explain all the stuff, right? And like a lot of time. Oh yeah. I was, I was just like this sponge trying to absorb 
as much as I could. And she bought me my first Bible. Yeah, just feeling over. We never read the Bible in my life and just feeling really overwhelmed with having to read it. And she just made it really easy. And it helped us because Lakeridge was meeting at night, Sunday nights at that time. So she'd come back to my place in, in Kinneyburg and Chestermere and we'd have a glass of wine and we'd talk about the sermon and how I felt about it and what, what it meant to me in the life that, that I'm living right now. And, and I remember shortly after you and I decided that we were going to have lunch together. You were so concerned. You just didn't want me to get hurt because, you know, a gay person in your life was pretty new too. Yeah. I, I think you weren't sure how the language was going to accept me and you didn't want me to get hurt. And I just kind of said, hey, I'm just going to jump into this and I'm not going to worry about that. Yeah. I, I, and I still do. I, I still worry about you and I worry about others um, in the LGBTQ community that are at, at Lake Ridge and, and at other churches for that matter too, that I think oftentimes the church, the church can mix up our priorities around what it means to love and create safe places for others. And sometimes with the very best of intention, we can do harm. Well, and I was working through it too. There was so many things going on for me. And this is, this is why I think that you and I have become such good friends is because we've always had an ability to talk openly. And, and some of that comes with some truth about where we're at and what we're freaking out about or what we're concerned about. And I remember one of the nights, it was late, it was late, and you tried to phone me. And I phoned you back because I think I hadn't answered. I phoned you back and you, you were having a very, very difficult night and you had come across somewhere in the Bible had communicated that you, you were less a child of God and your heart was so broken. And we had to, we had to talk through that and and work through some of that. And, and I had to figure out what I believed and what I believe now. And, and we, in a lot of ways over this particular topic, we did it together. And so that Boston pizza conversation, I remember saying to you, I'm going to be honest with you. I was very concerned about you getting hurt. I, I am certain I said to you that day, look, Kevin, I don't know where, where I'm at on this, not wanting to hurt you, but also wanting to be just truthful. That, that I think it's important that we live authentically this way. And I remember saying, I just know where I'm at. And I remember your response back to me was, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was so scared to say that to you because I was like, oh man, it's going to hurt him. And, you know, he's not going to want to be in my, around me anymore because I don't know what I think about this. And, you know, I don't think we said it out loud, but I know I walked away going, I'm going to find out what I think about this. This is going to be one of the people that's going to walk this journey with me. And you were doing the same, which was really something. So it is, it is interesting that you were able to tell the truth to each other like that and just name it. And for Kevin to hear it from the pastor of the church that he didn't know where he was at and you still decided to come to Lake Ridge. Yeah. At that point, I figured, hey, the pastor knows everything. We know that's not true now. But, <laughs> but yeah, what did, what did that conversation mean to you? And, and how did that con- make you want to continue to be a part of Lake Ridge? Or explore your faith, more importantly. You know, coming to my faith was one thing. Starting to go to a church that was so involved in the community, and here I was, retired, with all this time on my hands, and Evan 
constantly coming up with, hey, you can help out with this. And there's this opportunity for you to help out with. And then I realized that Lakeridge is more than just a church. Like when we say we're a community church, it's because there's just as much done outside of the church as there is done inside the church with the community. And, and living in Chestermere was, was an amazing opportunity for me to become involved. For Evan to come out and say that he didn't know where he was going when I was feeling the exact same way, it just felt like this is just going to come out whichever way it's going to come out. I think maybe you were worried about me feeling insecure about your answer, but it made me feel right at home. I actually think that's a, like, that's a real thing. When we're insecure about something, we don't say that we're insecure about it. And unfortunately, I think we rob people around us of, of being a part of the, the growing journey that each of us are on. Like there was some fear for me around even like Lake Ridge was this brand new church. Um, and in a lot of ways, the way you talk about it that in church planting is that it's like that it was extremely vulnerable to working or not working, you know, succeeding or not succeeding. And anything that's overly controversial in the middle of those vulnerable times can end a church plant. So like, and we've talked about this, you know, what I find is really interesting about the whole story and why I think it, it has so much to do with my own transformation was that I was worried about Lake Ridge too. And I had to answer these big pastoral questions about who I was planning to be as a pastor. And, and you coming to Lake Ridge pushed me to determine what was going to be really important. And it wasn't just me that ended up being changed and transformed. And it wasn't just you. It was Lake Ridge. Because in our most vulnerable kind of developmental years of our life, we got challenged to consider, are we going to be welcoming or aren't we? Are we going to let people come and be themselves or aren't we? Do you believe Jesus has swung wide open the doors of the church or don't you? What was the really challenging thing was you were so excited about Jesus. (laughs) It was like, there was, and you still are like this. It's like, it's very seldom you talk to you without you talking about something you've learned. Mm-hmm. Some question you're asking about your faith, somebody you're trying to love because Jesus loves them mm. because you, you were just wanting to learn so much about it. And then at the same time, all these people will walk around going, I think that guy's gay. What are we <laughs> going to do? <laughs> and, and the, the problem is I really like him. He's really incredible. And he's learning about Jesus. And isn't that isn't this what we're supposed to be about? Isn't this really, truly what the church is supposed to be about? I love this, this story because you, you grew a heart for multiple things, for the scriptures, for, for people, for ultimately for Jesus, for some other places in the world, which I hope we're going to talk about in a second. And, and you lived out in so many ways this radical, the radical values of Lakeridge. To be honest with you, like you, you've referred to your story as you were staging houses. And I'll never forget, we came across the single mom, right? Who's got two kids and an empty house and, and no money. And it was hard, really, really hard for her. And you, you decided you were going to love this lady and her two girls. And you furnished her whole house for her. Yeah, that was awesome. And I... The overwhelming like transformation I saw in you that translated into a 
you know, you just living out who you are. Honestly, now I know this is who you are, but mm-hmm. your, your generosity towards others, especially the broken was um, humbling and inspiring and still is anyways t- tell it i i told i took over the podcast there for a second i'm sorry okay <laughs> back to your story <laughs> i think we should back up just a little bit to 2013 okay. our first trip to israel you and kristen and gwen and myself the four of us are part of a a group of of people from all of our churches across the u.s and canada i think there were about 60 of us on that bus on that tour and of course, Gwen and I were sharing a room. And so everybody assumed that Gwen and I were a couple. <laughs> and I would get these, these older gentlemen coming to me and saying, so what attracted you to her? Is it her beautiful blonde hair? Like, what's your secret? How did you nab such a beauty? And of course, I'm, and Gwen's getting the same thing on her side. People all thinking that we're a couple. And as much as we said, no, we're just really good friends. And, you know, on this journey together, Nobody would believe us. And I remember, Evan, you and I sat at the pool one day with Kristen and you were like, well, what are you going to do about this? And I had no idea what I was going to do about it. But the next day was Gwen's reaffirmation, her baptism, where you baptized her in the Jordan. And I filmed the whole thing. It was so beautiful. I wasn't there yet in, in my faith walk, but I was so envious of her. It was so beautiful. And so after we got her all dried off, we started walking back towards the, the gift shop there. And I had a complete meltdown. I was just feeling insecure being on this trip where all these people have no idea who I am. They're assuming that, you know, I am Gwen and I are a couple. They don't know who I am. They don't know my story. I just feeling really inadequate with all these, you know, people who have been, following Jesus for a much longer time than me. Anyway, Gwen tried to console me. There was nothing doing. I just, I don't know. I'm not a hysterical person, but I was hysterical that day. I'm, I'm standing in front of the Jordan and I feel this hand on my shoulder. And I remember you, you just asked me what's going on. And I finally was able to stop crying and just explain to you how I was feeling that I was not a child of God or not accepted as a child of God. And just all my old insecurities just came flooding back. We had a really good talk. We prayed. And then we walked back up to the gift shop. I was feeling better. It wasn't until two years later. And I told you that I wanted you to baptize me. And to bring you backwards too. It's like on that first trip, after that whole experience of the Jordan, the rest of the group still didn't know Kevin. They still don't know who you were. I remember you, you know, there was some reflection times where the group was doing reflection things and, and you had decided you were going to, can you tell us a little bit about that, that you were going to tell yeah. them who you were? And this is on the first trip? This is on the first like, trip. Okay. After this yeah. moment you have, okay, got it. Yeah. There was, um, there was a debriefing basically. And so we're all sitting in this room in the hotel and the, I guess it was Jeff who asked, does anybody want to share anything about their trip? And so I figured if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. I wanted to be the first one to speak. And so I raised my hand and I said, I want to tell my story to everybody sitting in this room. And 
lots of tears. I actually got to tell my story, who I was, how I was feeling, Claude's death, God finding me, not me looking for God, but God actually finding me. And all of a sudden, all this pressure was just released instantly from the entire trip that I was just holding on to the entire time. And the most amazing thing is that every single person in that room came up and hugged me and told me that they loved me and they were proud of me and that God indeed did consider me to be one of his children. And all, all my fears just went away. I was so fearful that I was just going to be rejected by all these people. Not only because they assumed that, you know, Gwen and I were a couple, <laughs> but that it wasn't even just that. It was the fact that I was gay. I remember how afraid you were that, that day and when you started sharing. When I think back, and I think oftentimes we can't help but remember ourselves in each of the stories that we experience. And I remember being so afraid. I was afraid that day. You had told me, I think I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell them. And I was afraid. I remember praying in my room before I went down to the group that somehow desperate prayer, like Jesus, please intervene and have these people welcome Kevin, make him feel he can be himself. And they did. That was a fear of mine. Someone would give you the impression that you weren't a beloved child of God because of your sexual orientation. But I also did encourage you to tell the truth. I always think telling the truth is, is the right way forward. But so I, I also remember, I'm going to, can I backtrack way back to your yep. story, what you shared? Claude being a rodeo guy. Um, he was also a part of the, the gay rodeo that would take place in Strathmore, which was, a, which was, to be honest, from the outside world, was a pretty controversial event, especially in kind of the, the town of Strathmore and demographics of people in, in Strathmore. And that's not to say anything bad about it. It's just to say that's what it was like. And I remember you invited me to, to come to the first rodeo after Claude had passed away. Yeah. And they were going to do some, they were going to do some memorial or something in honor of Claude, I think. Yep. And you had said, you know, and I remember you said, you don't have to come. There's no problem. You don't have to come. Like you're trying to be all nice to me. And, and I remember wrestling with it like, oh, I don't know. What's this going to do? What's this going to, what about my reputation? What will people think? But I, but I did really sense that it was like that Jesus wanted me to be at that rodeo. And I knew it was a part of your grieving journey and, and not just you, but, but others who, were, who, who loved Claude. And I went and it was awkward for me. When I first got there, it was weird. And I remember you welcoming me to that rodeo. I, and that and the, I felt like you, you made a place for me among your friends and your community. And, and not just you, they welcomed me in. Like when I look back at this story, to me, I just go, like I shake my head about it. And I, we're going to talk about a few more things, but I just shake my head because I'm like, the church struggles to know how to be inclusive to to all people that they don't understand. That applies to the LGBTQ community, but also applies to other ethnicities, other faiths, other, all of those things. The church struggles to do that. I don't know if, your, if the gay community, your friends in the gay community struggled with this or not, but they invited a pastor to their party. 
Yeah. And I'm sure that was just as weird, right? Like just as challenging to, to, to overcome the, the, the divides that should have been there and honestly weren't. Like, I'm not Absolutely. saying that we all didn't have to understand each other and ask more questions. And no, I'm not saying all that. That's a part of coming to, to love each other in the way that Jesus calls us to love each other. But how could this story not be a story of God? And I do wonder, like, I'm just throw this out there, but I do wonder if part of the reason why we've been able to make this connection and grow in this way is that we started out in pain. You've often said that. And I think of the unlikeliness of, of our friendship too, or, or even Tara, even Tara and I, the, mm-hmm. what is the likelihood that you, your path and my path would have crossed given right. who you are, given who I am. It's, if that's not God, working to, to bring unlikely people together, then I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I love about Lake Ridge because I look at my friendships there and the people that, that I love and that love me. And there's no way that without God's help, these people would come together. Yeah. So how and we've talked about this. So this is just something I'm curious, but it's like you start coming to Lake Ridge you start beginning to believe that maybe you are a child of God, a be- the beloved child of God. How long does it take you in years to start to come to believe that? Is that a year? Is that five years? Is that, are, we at, are we at six years? If I look at, you know, when I first started going to Lake Ridge and when I actually believed it, it was Israel, that trip. So two and a half years later. No matter how many conversations we had and how much I read my Bible and, and how much I wanted to be a child of God, until I felt it in my heart, which I did that day, and a lot of tears, I don't know. I was, it's something I had an expectation from you, that you were going to bring that home for me. You were mm-hmm. going to finally make mm-hmm. me believe that truth. And I kept waiting for it. Yeah. And it was never my job. No, exactly. But of course, you know, when you're new to faith, I don't think you, you don't, you're just looking for a confirmation from someone to say, yep, you're there. You've, you've done it. You're good. You're in the family. Yeah. And just waiting and waiting. And as much as you and I have talked about it, I I still felt like I was in this awesome, safe place in, in Lake Ridge with a whole bunch of people who cared for me and loved me. And I felt closer to God than I ever did in my entire life until you start looking back and realizing that he was actually there all along. But that's a long journey. And for me, it was like, what, 49, 50 years to get to that point. As I remember, we had conversations about identity, a lot of identity. And and in the LGBTQ community, a lot of, a lot of the language is your identity is found in, in your sexual orientation. And I remember, I think it was on that Israel trip. I remember saying, well, which are you? Which is first? Are you a beloved child of God? Or are you first? Like, what's first? Or are you a gay man? And not only did I think you probably answered that question at the time, the story of, at the river is the story of you going, I'm a beloved child of God who happens to be gay. Absolutely. And it, it, to me, it's been one of the great privileges of kind of walking with you in this life is to see that. And, and I think that the, one of the gifts over the last decade for me 
has, has been to realize that not only is it not my job to change you, um, I don't want to. And I don't think Jesus wants you to either. Mm. I think he's quite pleased with who you are. Okay, so, but we have a few other things that happen. We go to Haiti. You got to talk. <laughs> you got to talk about some of the. So we we've gotten to travel some places, and I still would say, the most sig- significant trip that we've taken together was to this tiny little country in in the Caribbean uh, in Haiti. And uh, can you tell just what was that like for you? I had been on the to Haiti multiple times. And I don't even know how I let it led up to me convincing you to come with me, but what was that like for you? And then, well, I guess just listening to your stories of Haiti and, and the work that, you know, our, our group of churches have done there and the friendships that you've, you've made with the people there. I was curious. So yeah, I've traveled to a lot of places, but I've never been to a place like Haiti. And so when you talked about bringing a group of us there um, in 2016, I, I jumped all over that. And I remember my nephew, Giovanni, came with us mm-hmm. and, and a whole group. And I tell you, that was Tara's first trip there, too. Tara and Ryan's yep. first trip yep. there, too. You guys got to go together. Yep. Yeah. I remember all the preparation for it. And I remember we were having all these school drives where we were collecting vitamins for the kids. And we we're trying to collect all this stuff. So, of course, in my mind, I'm like, Haiti has nothing. And so whatever we bring them is going to be this like huge gift. And then of course you did, I did some research on it and you're looking at pictures and you know, what Haiti looked like, you know, 30 years ago versus what it looks like today. And before the the earthquake, I honestly felt that I was going down there and my job was like, we have to save these people as many as we can during this trip. And it's not until you're there that you realize they don't need saving, least of all from me. What, what I did realize is there's this happiness about them with the hopelessness. It's, it's all kind of like all mixed and melded together because, and it takes you a while before you actually believe that. You can see it, but actually live and breathe it to understand why is it, what's making them so happy. They're the most hopeful people in the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I hear, I remember one of the pastors telling us that, you know, hope is the currency of Haiti. When you work alongside them and any encouragement that they give you and you give them is an exchange and, and creates a friendship with people that, again, this unlikelihood that I would ever have friends in Haiti. And so as soon as I put aside, yes, there's a lot of devastation there. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of sickness when you realize it's not your job to save them and just walk alongside them, not above them, not below them, just alongside them. I think that's where the, my breaking point, that's when it happened for me. I'll never forget one day we had just finished digging some ponds out at the uh, university. And I was walking back by myself to Dr. Mano's place. And I just had this moment where I felt the happiest I've ever felt in my entire life. I think as soon as I came to terms with the fact that I wasn't there to save anybody, maybe they were there to save me, actually, that's when everything just kind of settled down. And and every trip I took since then, I didn't see all the devastation. I didn't see the poverty. I didn't see, I just, 
was so happy to be there and to spend time with our friends. And we just happened to be there to, to help them. And I remember you had a vision for doing fish ponds there. And we actually talked a little bit about it then, but went to visit some abandoned fish ponds while we were there. And then you just started dreaming about what could be. And we took some pictures and we talked to some people and then we came back and we wrote lots of emails to people and yeah, started to plant a seed there. What would it be like to have fish ponds, a sustainable project where all we had to do was get these farmers started with their own pond and give them some fish and just watch them grow and watch them feed their families and, and, you know, help to bring some income into their community was just a dream that you started way back then. Yeah. I think it's just really important to point out too. And I think you both have kind of said this about Haiti, but I just want to make it really clear. Like it was an idea that you saw, you both saw when you were there, but it was really important that we come alongside for the needs that come alongside leaders there. Jeff was someone who was presenting himself as a leader and interest in this. And it was a need that they saw in their community. And it was something that was working there. It wasn't a project that we thought up and brought there. So it's just important for people who haven't been or who aren't aware of our Haiti story. Well, and really to add to that, right. It was like what, what spurred it on was seeing ponds that had already been dug there, right? This was some, somebody, a Haitian had already been doing that work, but it had fallen into disrepair. So really all we were doing was trying to come alongside and figure out how we could honestly, in that case, some education around how to actually grow the fish well. Mm-hmm. And so it was when we started educating people about how you could grow fish and Randy came. That's when Jeff, Jeff was translating that day. I, mm-hmm. I remember that day when he was like, and Jeff was like, no, no, Randy says, and then you don't have to feed the fish. And Jeff goes to translate that into Creole and pauses, looks at Randy <laughs> and goes, what? What do you mean you don't have to feed the fish? He's like, oh, they, they eat the phytoplankton. So you don't have to feed them. They just grow. Once you get the phytoplankton growing, they just eat that. And it was like Jeff, we had to put Jeff's jaw back in and insert his teeth back into his mouth. He <laughs> dropped so far open. He was so shocked. <laughs> and that is actually what's happening, which is pretty cool. Pretty cool. Not without its challenges and learning all that stuff. And, and Jeff's been a great problem solver down there trying to figure out all the different things. But yeah, and, I, and they're, they are missing our conversations and seeing us and even Pastor Dorsonville said, I, I, I long for the day when you guys can come and visit again. Hey, Tara, what did we miss? What have we missed out on? Kevin, do you, do you have things? Well, I'd like to tell you a little bit about my current life and, and my current oh, partner. Oh yeah. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, in 2015, I was in Florida celebrating my really good friend Suzanne's 60th birthday. And I get this text from a friend of mine in Calgary. And she said, there's a guy in Florida right now. And I think that you and him would really hit it off. He lives in Montreal. He works for Canada. And I didn't know, but she spoke to him about me four years prior and just Mm -hmm. said, I think that you guys are going to be this perfect match. Well, four years later, I'm in Florida. Joel's in Florida. And Sue gives me his number and said, give him a call and you guys should like, you know, go and have a glass of wine and chat and see if this goes anywhere. But I think you guys were made for each other. And so we did. I realized that, you know, after Claude's death, I kind of thought that 
my heart was permanently broken in that respect and that I was just made to be alone. And that's how I was going to finish mm-hmm. out the rest of my years. So it was a, an awesome surprise to have, you know, Joel come into my life. Okay. I do have one last question for you. What are the questions you're asking about your life and your faith right now? We move back and forth quite a bit, right? We've got a place in Quebec, which is where I'm at right now. And, you know, we got a place in Canmore last year. And there was always this juggling of schedules for us to to get back and forth. And I think my fear has always been or was that, you know, being so far away from everybody, are people at church going to forget me? And no matter the distance, that's that's never happened. Um, Last year was the year I actually decided not to read my one-year Bible. I'd read it five years in a row. I kind of said to myself, maybe I need to be doing something else because just reading it over and over again was just becoming repetitive. And yes, of course, every time I read it, I I get something new out of it. But I actually decided my approach is going to be different now. I must have, no word of a lie, maybe 100 post-its in my Bible. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to read the post-its so I can remember how I felt when I read the Bible versus just reading it all over again. And so mm-hmm. I think that's a really good way for me to just kind of get back into this. And so I think mm-hmm. that's going to be a really awesome way is for me to just pull out my Bible and start going through all those post-its and, and reading what was in my heart when I did read it. Oh, man. Thank you so much for your time, Kevin. Let me, let me just say this. I believed that as a pastor, I was called to love and serve people and make a difference in their life so they could experience transformation. I don't think I ever knew how much those people would change me and teach me about Jesus. And both of you on this call are people who have shaped me in some significant ways. And so I'm grateful for my relationship with you and for the ways in which you've asked great questions and and mostly reminded me of what's really important about the heart of God. Anyways, um, for your friendship, I'm grateful. And thanks for your time today and sharing with us a little bit and for the many ways that you've served and loved people around you. Well, thank you for the opportunity to to converse with you guys in this podcast and thank you both for making it super easy and comfortable. That's, that's a huge process, right? Is feeling comfortable. And you guys always do that for me. So I can always Mm -hmm. be myself around both of you and, and you just make it that much easier. Mm -hmm. And I love you guys. Yeah. I love love you too. too. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Hey, thanks for joining us. We'd love if you take a moment to rate, subscribe, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, thanks for listening.